Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we're going to discuss Al-Mutawakkil's plan for succession and the unfortunate way it went awry. His idea wasn't very good to begin with, and the fragile arrangement was further compromised by the many enemies the Caliph had made over the course of his reign. Once we're done, we'll reflect on the complicated legacy Al-Mutawakkil left behind and prepare ourselves for the dark days that lie ahead. Episode 67, Breaking the Camel's Back In the year 850, the waters of the Tigris turned yellow for three days, then a dark black. In the year 854, an enigmatic shriek resounded in the caliphate's skies, leaving scores dead. Hail, larger than a chicken's egg, pelted Iraq and destroyed 13 towns. In 855, the stars came unhinged. They bobbed in the night sky as if floating on waves, and the planets scattered like locusts. Witnesses report it was very disturbing, and that they never saw anything like it again. In 856, the caliphate was quite literally shaken. Set off by a massive quake in Tunis, similar tectonic disasters occurred in Rai, Khurasan, Nishapur, Tabaristan, and Asbahan. Later that year, it rained stones in Egypt, some weighing up to 10 pounds. There were flash floods in Yemen, and in Halab, a white bird landed in a public square during Ramadan and proclaimed Ittaqullah, or repent, 40 times. It came back the next day for an encore, and the narration insists that 500 people witnessed the spectacle. Finally, in 859, more earthquakes ravaged the lands, and a mountain fell into the sea in Antakya. Another mysterious celestial cry claimed countless lives in Egypt, and the blessed springs of Mecca all ran dry. I think that covers every doom omen I came across while reading about al-Mutawakkil's reign. While these menacing reports don't explicitly mention the caliph's disastrous end, there's a clear uptick in their numbers as we near the impending calamity. I usually shield listeners from such tales, but I have a couple reasons for sharing this time around. They're the first of many examples of how the chaotic aftermath warped what we find about al-Mutawakkil's reign. Secondly, to show how difficult it can be to untangle the truth from fiction when our primary accounts are thus distorted. These fantastical reports all seem easily dismissible at first glance but it turns out that one of them is actually true. In 856, an earthquake in Damaran, in modern Iran, claimed over 45,000 lives in that city, and over 200,000 in total, making it the sixth deadliest seismic event known to man. I feel like every time we discuss this caliph, we emerged with a different version of him. 
When he first took out all those powerful administrators that nominated him, he seemed like a real maverick. Then he came off so-so and unimaginative when we described the feeble attempts he made at disempowering the Turks, all while relying on them entirely to win his wars. Finally, he seemed like a real fanatic when we talked about his religious policies last time, with a penchant for persecuting other communities to boot. In this, our fourth and final episode on Al-Mutawakkil will cast him in yet another new light. Or new to us, I should say. It's the same tired angle many narrations take, that he was effectively a shining replica of the illustrious Harun al-Rashid. I know my opinion of the esteemed caliph was somewhat tepid, but I assure you our sources meant their comparisons as a compliment. It was their way of calling al-Mutawakkil a restorer. After all, who in the Ummah wouldn't kill to go back to how things had been before the great fitna? To that end, we find three parallels in particular that get drawn repeatedly between the two figures. The first concerns religious edicts. Al-Rashid did issue some restrictions on how Christians were to appear in public, and those are used to excuse al-Mutawakkil's far more vigorous persecution of the Ummah's minorities as a return to a healthier past. We should not fall for this. Although some accounts celebrate the Caliph as the champion of the Sunnah, this opinion wasn't uniform even among the orthodox majority, to say nothing of the oppressed minorities. Nobody stood up to al-Mutawakkil's bullying in person, but we find lines of verse skewering the caliph for his tyranny and hypocrisy. Not the bravest resistance, but it shows that even the traditionally conservative Arab community took issue with his harsh stance. The second analog relates to the way the two caliphs used their wazirs. But it's awkward, so some explanation is in order to show how this ties back into the topic of restoring the caliphate. When I think of al-Rashid's viziers, I think of the Baramika and their terrible and sudden end at the hands of a caliph they were on such intimate terms with. Some narrations make the connection to al-Mutawakkil by saying both he and al-Rashid reclaimed their authority by eliminating bureaucrats who thought they were too big to fail. Other accounts take the opposite approach. They say that the administration of these two caliphs benefited from them being on such good terms with their top officials. I know I haven't said much about the caliph's best friend and counselor, Al-Fatih ibn Khaqan, or his trusted vizier, Ubaidullah ibn Yahya ibn Khaqan, but they were constant companions of the caliph, who feature in virtually all narrations relating to his court and policies. Fatih didn't really have an official role within the state, but Ubaidullah was the chief administrator and had complete control of the treasury. They shared al-Mutawakkil's religious views, and many accounts say the pair encouraged the caliph to persecute the Mu'tazilites and the Shia. They also played a big role in advising al-Mutawakkil on ways to curb the influence of the Turks. The third and final parallel is our main topic for today, succession arrangements, and it's the only similarity I am fully on board with. Despite the disastrous way his grandfather's arrangement unfolded, Al-Mutawakkil seems to have made a conscious effort to emulate it as closely as possible. 
In the year 850, the caliph wrote up a long and detailed contract, laying out exactly how the realm would be divided between his three sons after his death, and the responsibilities each held towards his brothers and the state. First in line for the throne was his eldest, Al-Muntasir, who was assigned the lion's share of the caliphate. Egypt, all the provinces bordering the Byzantines, the Arabian Peninsula, Sind, Mosul, Samarra, and more. Second in line was Al-Mu'taz, who was meant to oversee Greater Khurasan, Armenia, and Azerbaijan during his brother's reign, then take over after Al-Muntasir had passed away. Finally, there was Al-Mu'ayyad, who was only assigned the parts of Greater Syria that didn't border the Byzantines, Damascus, Homs, Jordan, and Palestine. Al-Mutawakkil signed the contract himself and made three more copies, one meant for each of his sons. So as you can see, the two arrangements shared the same basic structure, but there were still some important differences. Al-Rashid threw a massive party for his vizier after the latter secured Khurasan's pledges for the five-year-old Al-Amin as his heir. He added Al-Ma'mun only after he grew concerned at the way his first choice was turning out, when the two half-brothers were in their early teens. The whole contract signing he made them do came a few years later, and it was as much about establishing a clear set of rules as it was about having his sons make the pledge in public as adults. By contrast, Al-Mutawakkil didn't bother with any of that. He nominated his three children in one go, and signed the contract himself because his kids were too young for their testimony to be meaningful. His eldest, Al-Muntasir, was 13, Al-Mu'taz was 3, and Al-Mu'ayyad was just a few months old. The significant age gap between the brothers is another decisive difference between their situation and that of Al-Amin and Al-Ma'mun, who were only months apart. As for how this ties into Al-Mutawakkil's reputation as a reformer, Get this. Some accounts present the caliph's succession arrangement as the centerpiece of his long-term master plan to weaken the Turks. They reason that by assigning three Abbasid princes in charge of the caliphate, Al-Mutawakkil had effectively quadrupled his clan's hold on power, and the Turkish generals were now obliged to serve multiple masters. It's a laughably ridiculous thesis, and another example of how commentary about al-Mutawakkil always finds a way to revolve around his struggle against the Turks. In reality, the succession arrangement led to no immediate change in administration, and the Turks continued to wield supreme authority over the many lands they were responsible for. Now that we know what the plan was, let's take a look at why it didn't work out. Of the three brothers, only the heir apparent's life was changed by Al-Mutawakkil's arrangement. Everyone fully expected Al-Muntasir to eventually become the next caliph, and he got much the same treatment Al-Amin had received once upon a time. Neither Al-Mu'taz nor Al-Mu'ayyad were mistreated like Al-Ma'mun had, however, probably because they were much too young to pose any real threat to their brother's future. How do you snub a toddler and a baby, anyway? While we don't have much material on Al-Muntasir at this early stage, it seems obvious that the Turks would try to build strong ties with him. 
Ever since Al-Mu'tasim had first imported them into the Caliphate, they had always maintained a jealous watch over their relationship to the Caliph. Beyond the indispensable Turks, Al-Muntasir also became a magnet for anyone who felt unwelcome at his father's court. There's evidence the prince socialized with people associated with Mu'tazilites and Shia, so he must not have shared Al-Mutawakkil's rigid religious worldview. These weren't major problems, though. In fact, things were pretty good for a few years. It really wasn't until the caliph began to actively try and undermine the Turks that the trouble began. Since it's such a major part of the caliph's legacy, I will try and list every initiative taken against them that we here hinted about in our sources, but know that I'm erring on the side of generosity to al-Mutawakkil. The caliph is said to have favored non-Turks when dispensing assignments and rewards. He made the Turks change their uniform from gold to brown and wear their gear the way the Persians did. A separate diwan or register was created to account for their numbers and salaries, presumably so the court would have more visibility over their expenses. Finally, al-Mutawakkil tried creating alternatives, he fired a few Turkish leaders, and he killed Itah, of course. As with most material about the caliph, his companion, Fatah, and Vizir, Ubaidallah, feature in pretty much all these decisions. The move that really spooked the Turks was relocating the capital to Damascus in 857. We hear that al-Mutawakkil was already a little paranoid by this point, and he accused Big Bugha of treason, which is ironic because Big Bugha was the most loyal Turk of all. After proving his innocence, the general was assigned to the Byzantine frontier indefinitely, which some interpret as a sign that the caliph still feared his presence. Although al-Mutawakkil relented and returned to Samarra within a few months, tensions with the other Turkish leaders, namely Wasif and Little Bukha, remained high. The caliph began construction of a new capital just north of Samarra, and he refrained from granting any nearby lands to the Turks. More problematically, in 861, Al-Mutawakkil stripped Wasif of some of his lands. These weren't just personal riches. The general found them important for the maintenance of his troops. They didn't pay their salaries because those still came from the treasury, but the military leaders routinely used land to reward and incentivize the command structures they had assembled to support them. As you can imagine, all this friction between the caliph and his generals had a marked impact on the relationship between the Turks and al-Muntasir. The more al-Mutawakkil alienated the Turks, the more important al-Muntasir became to them, and their closeness to the heir soured his relationship with his father. The caliph's two counselors, al-Fatih and Ubaidallah, eventually began to encourage him to remove al-Muntasir altogether and promote his brother al-Mu'taz ahead of him. Coins were struck in al-Mu'taz's name as early as the mid-50s, but just like the tension with the Turks, it didn't crescendo until the 860s. Controversy looms ahead, and these are the last few accounts that seem to be widely accepted. It all went down in late 861. In October, the caliph took some of Wasif's lands and assigned them to Ubaidallah instead. Then November coincided with Ramadan, 
and Friday prayers were a huge deal, the last of them typically led by the caliph himself. Al-Mutawakkil was feeling a little under the weather, so the honor fell to Al-Muntasir, or it would have had the caliph's counselors not prevailed upon him to order Al-Mu'taz lead them instead. This was a considerable snub to the heir. Remember, he was 25, and his brother was only 15. Insulted, Al-Muntasir refused to attend, while Al-Mu'taz took his father's place of honor in front of a massive crowd. Fatah and Ubaidullah made such a show of celebrating the young prince that many were doubtless left with the impression that he was to become the next caliph. Since that took place in the last Friday of Ramadan, Eid was only a few days away, and Al-Mutawakkil thought it was only fair that Al-Muntasir be allowed to lead this time around. Again, however, we hear that Ubaidullah insisted that the people missed seeing their caliph last Friday, and that he ought to prove to the ummah that he was healthy as ever. Al-Muntasir was bumped off the schedule once again, this time in favor of his father. The final straw came a day or two later, in a humiliating incident for Al-Muntasir at one of the caliph's gatherings. See, Al-Mutawakkil had drinks with the boys on a nightly basis, and he must have been a pretty mean drunk. If you recall, his bad blood with Itach is rumored to have started during a drunken night. The caliph first ordered his bestie, Al-Fatah, to spank Al-Muntasir in front of everyone. Then, Looking at his son, he said, I named you Al-Muntasir, the victorious, but for your foolishness people called you Al-Muntadir, he who waits, and now you have become Al-Mustajil, the one in a hurry. I hereby remove Al-Mustajil. Al-Muntasir replied that he would have preferred a quick execution to being put through all this, and the caliph responded by calling for his wine. Opinions diverge at this point. One theory says that after a dozen years of anticipation, Al-Muntasir couldn't bear the thought of missing out on the throne, so he reached out to the Turks to enlist them in usurping his father. Another goes that the caliph and his buddies had a secret plan to execute the heir and the Turks, but that word got out after Al-Mutawakkil got really drunk the night they discussed it. Some say the Turks were the ones who spread these rumors, to scare Al-Muntasir into green-lighting a preemptive strike against the caliph. We find less credible theories implicating other groups, but going through them one by one isn't helpful. Animated by anger, fear, or both, Al-Muntasir and the Turks made common cause in a murderous plot against the caliph. On the fourth night following Eid al-Fitr, in December 861, a band of little Bugha's men burst in on Al-Mutawakkil while he was drinking with Al-Fatah and killed them both. Ubaidullah was only spared by his decision to work late that night. The next day, Al-Muntasir addressed a small crowd and told them that Al-Mutawakkil had been murdered by Al-Fatah ibn Khaqan in a drunken rage, who was in turn killed by the palace guard. This all took place in the new capital Al-Mutawakkil was building and Al-Muntasir stayed there for ten days before returning to Samarra to accept pledges and begin his reign. But that is a subject for next time.
Our last task for today is a weighty one. Assessing this caliph is a lot harder than it seems. This really bugged me at first. We've covered our fair share of nebulous caliphs together over the last couple of years, and they've all had somewhat settled reputations, whether they were legendary, controversial, or even nearly forgotten. We have so much more material on Al-Mutawakkid too, I just couldn't understand why he remained so elusive. To be clear, I don't mean I couldn't figure him out. What really puzzled me was the sheer quantity of contradictory retrospectives on this caliph. Over the last few months, I've really engrossed myself in researching Al-Mutawakkil. After reading about him in our three primary sources, I perused a few modern commentaries to see how they stitched together all the conflicting testimony. Their casual approach didn't yield many insights, so I read a couple doctoral theses on the caliph, and only then did I feel like I was starting to get a handle on him. To confirm those suspicions, I checked out some of the material they cited. And dear listener, I am happy to report that my ultimate conclusion matched my earliest intuitions. This guy is really tough to pin down. Sorry to give you the runaround like that, but the fact that I did my homework is what gives this next bit any weight. I can now confidently say that I understand the confusion behind the caliph. It seems to me that what's special about al-Mutawakkil was his timing. He's the first caliph whose reign was personally experienced by two of our authors, al-Yaqubi and al-Tabari. In fact, al-Tabari even worked as a tutor for Ubaidullah's children for a few years, so he was not unfamiliar with al-Mutawakkil's court. Narrations about his long reign didn't have the chance to coalesce into a settled impression, so they're all over the place. Much more decisively, however, the end of al-Mutawakkil's reign kicked off a calamitous chapter in Arab history, and the Ummah's trauma in the ensuing decade distorted its memories of what had come before. The caliph's shocking elimination at the hands of the Turks ensured that he would only ever be remembered in opposition to them. His days in charge and his decisions were judged solely by the impact they had on his relationship with the Turkish leaders. The confluence of these factors makes all the material we have on the caliph a cacophonous mess. While sizing up someone's legacy provides a pleasant sense of closure, Al-Mutawakkil is a stark reminder of just how unreliable the material we base these opinions on can be. Still, though, I think we can at the very least push back on some of the more ludicrous assertions about this caliph. It's never a good idea to take claims of piety at face value, but with al-Mutawakkil, they're downright hypocritical. This Nasr al-Sunnah, or champion of the Prophet's tradition, as he was endearingly referred to by his religious fans, was in reality quite a lout. His tales of drunkenness were so well known that when the people rejected the explanation offered by the court as to how al-Mutawakkil met his end, the next version simply said that he had choked on his wine. Now, I don't have a problem with drinking, but the caliph clearly had a problem with moderation. And not just with alcohol. He is reported to have had over 4,000 concubines, a number so huge I have a hard time believing it, but where there's smoke there's fire, you know. While crude and salacious, 
his massive collection would have been a more accurate parallel to draw with al-Rashid, who held the previous high score with about 400 women in his harem. In any case, this sort of indulgence doesn't lend itself to godliness, or even statesmanship, really. What I take the most issue with is al-Mutawakkil's reputation for being a reformer. I understand where it comes from now, but as far as reforming anything goes, he failed miserably. Although it's true he was concerned about the power held by the military leadership, his attempts to limit it were quite unconvincing. It's not like he didn't have other options. He could have married into as many powerful tribes or loyalty networks as he pleased, or used his three sons to build wider alliances. Speaking of wedlock, the last caliph to get married was Al-Ma'mun. Some sources joke that a nasty divorce he had in Damascus caused his family to swear off the institution of marriage altogether, in which case I apologize to Al-Mutawakkil for my insensitive advice. Out of everything we've covered, though, it's the caliph's plan for succession that really showcases how bad a policymaker he was. A deluded arrangement that reveals al-Mutawakkil as arrogant and out of touch. When he first made his designs known, al-Muntasir was only 13. Did the caliph somehow forget that the men who chose him only did so after refusing to pledge to his younger nephew? It seems clear to me that were al-Mutawakkil to suddenly pass away the next day, the Turks would have simply picked the next leader themselves once again. Then there's the way the caliph mistreated his heir. We don't have much material on al-Muntasir, and as with his father, what we do find revolves entirely around the Turks. Narrations about al-Muntasir make him out to be a callow youth with an axe to grind, but I think we can safely say that they're biased against the patricide. Sadly, there's nothing on the relationship between father and son, and al-Muntasir's dishonor at his father's party that night is one of the few accounts of the pair. That was especially disappointing to read about. Al-Mutawakkil himself spoke about how his own humiliation at his brother's court scarred him for life. For him, to re-enact his trauma on his son is either compulsive behavior or just bad fiction. Either way, it's disappointing. Ultimately, although I disagree with many commentaries on Al-Mutawakkil, I do respect their conclusions and acknowledge that they are based on sound scholarship. I, however, did not find any redemptive qualities in this caliph. He surrounded himself with yes-men and exercised his authority in tyrannical and unproductive ways. Commentators seem to prefer the symmetry of how the first caliph chosen by Turks was also killed by them, and so al-Mutawakkil's many shortcomings were forgotten as historians focused on his outrageous end instead. They described the Turks as the new masters of the caliphate, who were just now beginning to appreciate how much control they had over the ummah. While not completely untrue, it is a simplistic way to look at a complicated topic. One we'll explore much more deeply in the coming weeks. To learn more, Join me next time so we can go through the reign of Al-Muntasir together, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.